0: This is Storical, a new audio project brought to you by Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive on the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, J.T. Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is about a girl and her monstrous creation. Welcome to the very first episode of Storical. Funny story about the name. For those of you familiar with immortal perfumes, you know that all my creations are based on historical and literary figures. Well, the first time I got my labels for the bottles printed professionally, the printer made a mistake and the labels read Storical figures instead of historical. I had a momentary freak out, as you can imagine. It's like $500 to print labels. But then I kind of thought, that's a really accurate reflection on what I do. It's not just history that intrigues me, it's also the stories behind people's lives in all their tragic, imperfect glory. So here we are, new name for a podcast. My hope with Storical is that you'll learn something new about the lives of some of the most fascinating people who have ever lived. But I also want you to feel a connection to them beyond some drab textbook retelling of their lives. So after we do our deep dive, I'll give you book and media recommendations so you can see the subject really come alive. Okay, without further ado, let's talk about one of the greatest writers of all time and one of my personal heroines, Mary Shelley. I read Frankenstein when I was eight or nine years old. I can't remember, but I loved Gothic horror and monsters, all that stuff. But for as much as I loved and looked up to Mary Shelley, I honestly knew nothing about her until a recent plane trip to Ohio in which a biopic about her was one of the movie options. In the movie, her life was so melodramatic that I actually didn't believe any of it until I got off the plane and googled it and, yup, her life was a soapy telenovela, let me tell you. But we'll get to that. With any great story, it's best to start at the beginning. Chapter 1 daughter of anarchy. Mary Shelley was born on August 30th, 1797. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, died just 11 days later. It's difficult for me not to go completely off the rails here and just talk about Mary Wollstonecraft the rest of the time, because this woman was centuries ahead of her time. An intellectual and a philosopher, Wollstonecraft hobnobbed with other major thinkers and carried out a number of scandalous love affairs. After pursuing an affair with the married artist Henri Fuseli, she proposed that they live as a menage a trois. Fuseli's wife, as you can imagine, was none too pleased by this prospect. At this time, France was falling into revolution, the ideas of which appealed to Wollstonecraft. To escape the humiliation of the Fuseli scandal and to participate in the French Revolution, Wollstonecraft set out to Paris. She published an essay, Vindication of the Rights of Men, praising the revolution against its conservative critics. She was compared to such luminaries as Thomas Paine and his works Rights of Man, which you may remember from study of the American Revolution. She followed this with her most famous work, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, in which she argued that men and women were equal in intellect and ability, but women were at an unfair education disadvantage. Her time in Paris was further colored by a tumultuous affair with an American businessman. Wollstonecraft didn't believe in marriage, she believed in free love, so she often found herself in passionate affairs. She had a daughter, Fanny, and followed her lover back to England, but then the American abandoned her and the child. Wollstonecraft was so heartbroken and distraught that she tried to drown herself by filling her pockets with stones, as Virginia Woolf would do more than a century later, and jumped from a bridge in the River Thames. Keep this in mind for later, as suicide was a recurring tragedy in Mary Shelley's life. Okay, I told you, Mary's mother was a whole other story, so let's move on to her father. Like Wollstonecraft, William Godwin was famous and well-respected for his political and philosophical writings. His most famous work was a controversial book called An Enquiry Concerning Political Justice, in which he criticized institutions such as church, marriage, and government because they taught conformity. He believed in anarchy inasmuch as it led to equality. Godwin was also an atheist, which at the time was perhaps even more radical. The two met at the home of a mutual friend. While they did not find each other impressive after their first meeting, they nevertheless formed a friendship that grew into love. When Wollstonecraft became pregnant with Mary, she set out to raise Mary and her elder child Fanny on her own. Godwin, who had spoken so vehemently against marriage, wouldn't hear of it, so the two were married in March of 1797. Mary was born on the last day of August of that same year. 11 days later, Mary Wollstonecraft was dead. When discussing Mary Shelley's life and career, it's really important to put her parents into context. Their work had a profound influence on the decisions Mary would make, not just as a writer, but also in her tumultuous personal life. It didn't end there, however. When an adoring neighbor woman approached Godwin singing his praises several years later, Godwin, an atheist anarchist, alone, raising two daughters, one of which wasn't his, was quite taken. The woman's name was Mary Jane Claremont, and like Wollstonecraft and Godwin, also had a bit of a past. She had two children, Jane and James, whom were alleged to be of noble birth. However, Mary Jane was never married to Lord Claremont, as she claimed. And like Fanny, her children were born out of wedlock. She was neat and orderly and kind to Godwin, so he married her. They soon had a son, William, bringing their brood up to five. While adoring to Godwin and eager to praise his genius, Godwin's friends did not like Mary Jane. They thought she was moody and strict. And this, dear listeners, is where we set the scene. An idealistic, feminist mother who died giving birth, an atheist anarchist father of controversial repute, and a quintessentially evil stepmother. Chapter two, an intellectual childhood. Even though she never knew her mother, Mary still had an invested father, and because her father was a popular intellectual, all manner of interesting people frequented the Godwin homestead. One night, Godwin hosted a salon. Not wanting to miss out on the fun, Mary convinced her sister Jane to sneak out of their room and watch the party. They were treated to Samuel Taylor Coleridge, reciting his poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, which Mary of course loved because it was eerie and thrilling. This will definitely come up again later when we get to Mary's friend circle, but whenever I hear about all these famous people who are friends, I swear I always get serious FOMO. How do these people find each other? Anyway. A more infamous guest at the Godwin home was none other than Aaron Burr. Yes, that Aaron Burr, who shot Alexander Hamilton. I would absolutely love Lynn manuel Miranda to go ahead and make a Mary Shelley musical. That'd be just fine by me. Burr had fled the US after the duel and came to befriend the Godwins. He spent a lot of time with Mary and the other children and even listened to a speech written by a 10-year-old Mary called the influence of government on the character of people. I like to think she had a hidden meaning for him with that little gem. William William Godwin owned a bookshop and was one of the first publishers of books for children. He would hire his famous friends to write books for his company, the Juvenile Library. The books ranged from retellings of ancient myths to the histories of England and Rome. He had in Mary and his other children a willing audience of voracious readers. Throughout her childhood, her father encouraged reading and discourse. Mary was well-versed in her mother's works and even spent a fair amount of time laying on Wollstonecraft's grave as she read or wrote stories. William Godwin was strict and quite severe with his children. His new wife, Mary Jane, also preferred her own children and clashed frequently with Mary. At 13, Mary developed severe eczema so the family packed her off to a seaside boarding school hoping she'd get better. But one problem. The school was a glorified finishing school, so for a student like Mary, who was used to Samuel Taylor Coleridge, she actually got worse and was sent home after six months. This time her father arranged for her to be sent to one of his friend's estates in Scotland. There she made a friend in Isabella Baxter, one of the daughters who knew Mary Wollstonecraft's work as well. Mary spent the next two years in Scotland delighting in the nearby woods and wealth of knowledge and books that she was exposed to. In her dreamy happiness, her arm healed, and she received letters from home about an admirer of her father's work who had begun frequenting the bookshop. His name was Percy Bysshe Shelley. Chapter three, Rebellious Teenager. At the time of their meeting, Mary Shelley was 16 to Percy Shelley's 21. He was a great admirer of William Godwin, being an atheist himself, who had gotten into trouble at Oxford for publishing a pamphlet with a friend called The Necessity of Atheism. Percy was a gifted poet from a wealthy family. William Godwin encouraged Percy's patronage, hoping to have a wealthy benefactor. Despite its popularity, the bookshop and publishing house never did well financially. By all accounts, Percy was a pretty boy. Tall, dark, and handsome, with blue eyes. Between that, his poetry, and the fact that he shared the ideals of both Godwin and Wollstonecraft, it's easy to see why Mary became smitten with him. There was just one problem. Percy Shelley was married. A hopeless romantic, Percy had swept Harriet, a classmate of his sister's, off her feet. They had a young child with another on the way, but Harriet was no intellectual and Percy was bored with her. In Mary, he saw brilliance, excitement, and someone who shared his ideals of free love, equality, and adventure. Mary, Percy, and Mary's half-sister Jane took walks together and often visited Wollstonecraft's grave, where they'd talk poetry, philosophy, and travel. Percy went to Godwin and declared his love for Mary. Despite Godwin's belief in free love and his criticism of marriage, Godwin was furious and told Percy he could never see Mary again. He then shut Mary into the upstairs schoolroom of their bookshop. Confused by her father's reaction and hopelessly in love, Mary entrusted Jane to deliver letters to her lover. Percy, for his part, told Harriet that he was done with her. Not exactly the picture of calm... Percy then obtained a bottle of laudanum, took a giant swig, and then frantically broke into Mary's tower. He handed her the bottle and told her to take the rest of its contents, and then pulled out a gun, telling her that he would shoot himself so that they could be together in death, Romeo and Juliet style. I'm just going to take a moment to interject. So many red flags with this guy. I get that she was a teenager in love, but wow. Run, Mary. Mary. Needless to say, though, she didn't run. Instead, she firmly told Percy she would not drink the laudanum, but would be ever faithful to him if he would please calm down. Reasonable. If Godwin refused Percy before, now it was a definite hard pass. Percy OD'd on the laudanum a few days later, but was saved by his landlady. Despite all of this, Mary, through letters smuggled by a servant, made a plan to run away with Percy. She left her father a note and stole out of the house to a waiting carriage at 5 a.m. This is where Mary's story really starts to get juicy, though. For reasons that have never been fully explained, Jane ran away with Mary and Percy as well. Once the teens were picked up by Percy, they stole away to France and Switzerland. Now, I should mention that despite Percy's family's wealth, Percy was a notorious spendthrift and constantly broke. He repeatedly took post-obit loans, which were loans you could take out if you stood to inherit a large estate or sum of money. Basically, these loans stipulated that once Percy's father died, he could pay back his creditors with his inheritance money. They traveled and changed rooms repeatedly and burned through the money within six weeks. During this time, the three entertained themselves reading from a travelogue Wollstonecraft had written, pleased with themselves for embarking on such a grand adventure. They also took in the sights, including the ruins of Frankenstein Castle in Germany. Fun fact about that castle, an alchemist named Johann Conrad Dippel was born there in 1673 and he spent his life searching for a potion to grant immortality. And he even experimented on dead animals in the process. But back to our rebellious teens and 21 year old man. Out of money, they returned to England and I kid you not, were shocked to discover that they were social pariahs. Neither of their families would have them, so they were forced to take rooms all over town, moving frequently. Percy was constantly on the run or hiding from creditors who sought to throw him in debtor's prison. Sometimes Mary and Percy could only see each other on Sundays, as that was the only day he was safe from the law. Their luck changed a bit when Percy's grandfather died. Percy's father gave him a yearly allowance to take care of Harriet and his children, and he also wanted to prevent him from taking out any more obit loans because they could really drain the inheritance. Within that context, let's talk a bit about the dynamics of these relationships. First, we need to talk about Jane. Oh, Jane, a hot little mess that one was. As you can imagine, it wasn't too much fun to be the third wheel between an amorous sister and her lover. She might have even been in love with Percy herself, but her behavior was very stormy and childish. She would constantly complain of night terrors, insist on getting in bed with them, or would only be soothed if Percy stayed and talked with her in her room. While Mary was initially happy to have her sister along for the ride, by this point she was sick of the drama and suspicious that something was going on between Jane and Percy. Around this time, Jane decided to change her name to Claire and went by Claire Claremont, a name she felt was more romantic and literary. Percy and Mary spent their time writing and reading, even working on a travelogue of their adventures. But then, tragedy struck as Mary gave birth to a baby girl who died just after two weeks. Mary, despite her passionate nature, could be stoic. She went through a profound depression, but shared her feelings with no one, save for her journal. Trying to cheer her, Percy arranged for he and Mary to move to a cottage near Windsor Castle. They spent the summer boating, going for walks, and immersing themselves in nature. He sent Claire away much to Mary's relief. During Mary's mourning period, Claire had spent a lot of time with Percy, accompanying him on walks and shopping while Mary was confined to the house. Summer turned to autumn and then winter, and Mary gave birth to a boy named William after her father. Her father, meanwhile, still would not receive her and sent repeated demands for money from Percy. Clare, meanwhile, was back in London and had taken on a dalliance with none other than the celebrity poet Lord Byron, who was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Chapter 4, The Year Without a Summer In 1815, a volcano erupted in Indonesia. It caused a volcanic winter that affected the climate of the whole globe and led many to dub 1816, The Year Without a Summer. The weather over Europe was cool and rainy with gloomy overcast clouds. Claire, desperate to keep the interest of Lord Byron, arranged, without Byron's knowledge or consent, I should add, for Mary, Percy, and herself to meet up with him at his villa on Lake Geneva. By this point, Byron had tired of Claire, but she was in love and she wouldn't take no for an answer. She arranged for their party to run into Byron on the beach. Lucky for Claire, Percy and Byron took to each other immediately, and Byron was also intrigued by Mary and her intellect. They rented rooms near Byron's Villa and spent much of the summer with him and his young doctor friend, John Polidori. The group spent many hours together talking poetry and craft, as well as taking time to see the villages and castles nearby. They also spent evenings in lively conversations about philosophy, the nature of the soul, and astounding advancements in science and medicine. One stormy night, the friends gathered at Byron's Villa. At this point, they had spent many weeks as constant companions, and a sense of boredom started to grow especially since they were so frequently cooped up indoors due to such terrible weather. Byron found a book of ghost stories, which the group listened to by the fire. In a moment of excitement, Byron proposed that they have a writing competition. Each member of their party would write a ghost story to share with the group and decide the winner based on whose story was most bone chilling. The idea thrilled Mary, who needed an intellectual endeavor to occupy her brain. The only problem? Writer's block. It took her several weeks before she had the spark of an idea. In that time, Percy and Byron had given up on the endeavor, preferring the short form of poetry, and Polidori wrote a story called The Vampire, which was later published. I'm going to interject here just for a second, because the version of the story that I had always heard was that Mary was with her husband and friends, and she wrote the story for the competition that weekend. That's it. School neglected to tell me that it was Lord Byron's idea— And second, that the first draft of Frankenstein was written over the course of the summer, not the weekend, which actually makes way more sense. (laughs) Let's talk a bit about how inspiration struck. First, as mentioned earlier in the episode, there were breadcrumbs strewn all about her life leading up to this. Castles, alchemists, death, grief, it all swirled together one night when plagued by the insomnia of an active mind, she saw a vision. She later wrote, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life." And that, friends, is how we got our monster. But for Mary, this creative burst couldn't protect her from more tragedy. First, Claire announced that she was pregnant with Byron's child. Byron was furious, and while he agreed to the baby, to take the baby and raise her, he wanted nothing to do with Claire, which left her devastated and even more needy. Then, news came that her elder sister Fanny had killed herself, a crime at this time in history that put immense shame on a family. Soon after Fanny's death, they received word that Percy's wife Harriet had died under mysterious circumstances, pregnant and drowned. This sad news did lead to another door opening, however. With Harriet dead, Mary and Percy could marry. Despite their views on marriage, they each had something to gain. She, the love and acceptance of her father, and Percy wanted to appear responsible to the courts to gain custody over his children with Harriet. Mary became a Shelley on December 30th, 1816. She gave birth to a daughter, Clara, in September, 1817. In November of that year, she received word that after multiple rejections, Frankenstein, her monstrous creation, had found a publisher. Chapter 5, Moving On From Tragedy While Frankenstein's acceptance was joyful news, there was much stress in the Shelley household. Lord Byron, who had disappeared from their lives, wanted them to bring baby Allegra, his daughter with Claire, to Italy. Mary's father was again demanding money, despite the fact that she and Percy were having money troubles of their own. Percy was also prone to hypochondria, and was increasingly nervous and erratic. The group set out for Italy in hopes of respite from their troubles in England. It was 1818 now, and abroad they were unaware that Frankenstein had become a bestseller, and it was the talk of the town. Several British journals had reviewed her work with critiques that were both enthusiastic in their recommendation and deeply disturbed by the ugly parts of the novel. It's important to note that it was originally published anonymously with an introduction written by Percy. Because of this, it was assumed, and some still argue to this day, That it was written by percy not mary because patriarchy strikes again they continued with their nomadic lifestyle and traveled throughout italy but tragedy had a way of finding mary baby clara who was just a year old died in mary's arms the next year her son william would die at just five years old mary and percy were grief stricken and each found solace in their writing mary wrote a short novel called matilda and various short stories Lord Byron asked her to copy his poems for publication, hoping to give her a task to help distract from her grief. The ultimate distraction and happiness came in November 1819 with the birth of her fourth child, Percy Florence. But don't worry, though. Percy Florence grew into an adult, and he survived both of his parents. Over the next few years, the family continued with their travel and made all manner of new friends. Lord Byron remained a friend to the Shelleys, and it was on Lord Byron's boat, the Don Juan, that one final tragedy would unfold. Percy Shelley and a group of friends had sailed into a storm. For more than a week, no one had seen or heard from the Don Juan until three bodies washed ashore. One of the corpses was so decomposed, they could only identify it because of the book of poems in the jacket pocket. Mary's beloved Percy Shelley was dead at age 29. Mary was a widow at 25 and would never give her heart to another. The bodies were cremated on the beach save for the heart of Percy Bysshe Shelley. Mary wrapped the heart in a silk kerchief with pieces of Percy's poetry and kept it in her writing desk for the rest of her life. Through all the grief and tragedy she had experienced, Mary persevered and went on to live to her 50s. In that time, she continued to move frequently and also to write. Percy Shelley hadn't achieved much fame during his life, but Mary made it her personal mission to keep her husband's legacy alive. She edited volumes of his work for publication, and it was through her determination that Percy Bysshe Shelley became one of the most celebrated of the Romantic era poets. Mary died on February 1st, 1851. Her son, Percy Florence, was there at her side. When Percy Florence died in 1889, he was buried with the ashes of his father's heart. Chapter 6, Immortality In the end, Mary Shelley didn't find immortality on a raised platform in a lightning storm. She did it via the pen, and in Frankenstein was the birth of the genres of science fiction and horror. Last year, in his BAFTA acceptance speech for The Shape of Water, Academy Award-winning director Guillermo del Toro credited Mary Shelley to his success. He said, But the most important figure from English Legacy is incredibly for me, a teenager by the name of Mary Shelley. And she has remained a figure as important in my life as if she were family. And so many times when I want to give up, when I think about giving up, when people tell me that dreaming of the movies and the stories I dream are impossible, I think of her. Because she picked up the plight of Caliban and she gave weight to the burden of Prometheus. And she gave voice to the voiceless and presence to the invisible. And she showed me that sometimes to talk about monsters, we need to fabricate monsters our own. And parables do that for us. Now let's talk recommendations so you can continue your Mary Shelley love fest. I'm gonna focus on recent work because at this point, Frankenstein is canon. You know about Boris Karloff, you know about Young Frankenstein. Let's take a look at some new additions to pop culture. The 2017 movie, Mary Shelley, starring Elle Fanning as the author is melodramatic as I noted earlier. It gives a decent run through of everything we talked about here. My main issue with the movie was that the trailer made it seem more spooky with a greater emphasis on her writing but mostly the movie centered on the drama between her, Percy, and Claire, which, I mean, I get it. It's soapy. This is a solid airplane movie, I would say. Next, in the last year, there have been a slew of books focusing on Mary and Frankenstein. For nonfiction, I absolutely loved a YA retelling of her life called The Strange True Life of Frankenstein's Creator Mary Shelley by Catherine Reeve. It details her whole life, but isn't as dry as other biographies. For a well-written, highly researched book for adult audiences, Check out In Search of Mary Shelley, The Girl Who Wrote Frankenstein, by Fiona Sampson. It's sympathetic, empowering, and it is an exhaustive look at her life. You'll learn a ton. If you'd like to know more about Mary's life, but prefer to go the fiction route, check out Hideous Love by Stephanie Hemphill. This is a novel written in verse that's styled as journal entries written by Mary. It gives feeling and context to everything we discussed. I listened to it as an audiobook, and I used the library app Libby, So that's definitely an option and I recommend it. I also recently read Cadaver and Queen by Alyssa Quitney. I loved this book. It's about the first female medical student at a British medical school. And I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but Victor Frankenstein is a character. There's a romance aspect that's a little cringy, but the story overall is solid and Neil Gaiman recommended it. So there you go. Now, for those of you with kids, I have two recommendations. First, there's a seven-minute podcast by Brains On about Mary Shelley. It's a kid-friendly listen about the author. Second, there's a series of children's novels called The Wollstonecraft Detective Agency. And in these books, Mary Shelley and Ada Lovelace solve mysteries together. My five-year-old, she's enjoying it right now. So check it out. Well, that's all I've got for you on the first episode of Storical. I hope you enjoyed learning about Mary Shelley. Join me next time to learn the tragic tale of a hard partying flapper who was as tender as the night.